I was very struck in opening Mark chapter 9 and reading down the chapter and finding in it so many occasions where the disciples of Jesus were challenged. I think it's highlighted for us very prominently here that those men weren't always spiritual stalwarts. In fact, sometimes they were so unspiritual as for it to be surprising. They would have needed to pray the prayer of Psalm 51 and 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And then I look and I think to myself, well, am I any different? Are we any different to them? Their spirit. And down through the confines of this chapter, you can see it again and again, their spirit was wrong. And ours is sometimes wrong as well. Now, let me illustrate what I'm saying by giving you some examples here. First of all, they come with a paralyzed spirit. That's what I'm describing it as in the opening part of Mark chapter 9, the verse 5 and the verse 6. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elias. For he wist not what to say, for they were sore afraid. And fear had gripped him. And he really didn't know what to say. And what he did say shows a very careless attitude with his language here. He was right off the mark, a victim of a paralyzed spirit. But if you move down a few verses to verse 10 of the chapter, You'll find there a perplexed spirit, and they kept that saying within themselves, questioning one with another what the rising from the dead should mean. They had heard on this wonderful mount of transfiguration, not only the death but the resurrection of the Lord talked about, and they just cannot work it out. They're struggling to square the circle here. They are perplexed, not for the first and only time, because if you look again, and we're staying within the chapter here at verse 32, but they understood not that saying and were afraid to ask him. And again, it's about his death. They shall kill him. After that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. And so they are puzzled. And sometimes... We do what they did. We're in a problematic situation. We don't understand what is going on. We are perplexed and puzzled as well, but we don't take it to the Lord. And at the end of verse 32, that's what happened. They were afraid to ask Him. The one person who always has the answer they avoid it. And that gives greater perplexity. But then another spirit comes, a powerless spirit, and we can identify that in verse 28 and 29. And when he was come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could not we cast him out? 
And he said unto them, This kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. And that's that spirit that was cast out of the land by the power of Christ. But the disciples, they tried because the problem came to their door first. But they were powerless. Not only that, there was a manifestation of a proud spirit in 33 and 34. And he came to Capernaum, and being in the house, he asked them, What was it that ye disputed among yourselves by the way? But they held their peace. For by the way, they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. And so we have disciples here, and they're jockeying for the highest position. They want to have the preeminence. They want to be those that are looked upon by the rest of the assembly here as being the most vital persons. Without them, everything would fall apart. They want to be so prominent, and they're overcome here as they jostle verbally one with the other, and as they discuss here and maybe put their own credentials forward that it really should be me. And then when our Lord asks them, and He knows all that is in the heart of man, He knows what they were talking about, but they clam up, and they won't say. They're too embarrassed. And then in verse 38, with what I'm calling a partisan spirit, could call it a sectarian spirit, but then it wouldn't fit with the rest of the letters that we're using here. But in verse 38, and John answered him, saying, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he followeth not us. We forbid him because he followeth not us. Because we're going to deal with that in a little more detail, I'll pass over that particular spirit at this moment in time. We're coming into verse 38 through to 41 here, and the first main thought that we have is that of submission, a letter about submission. And the lesson is simply this, advancement in the kingdom of Christ comes through taking the lowest place. So, we're back to this discussion that the disciples had, by the way, as they're coming towards Capernaum. And in 33 through 37 of Mark chapter 9, this discussion is ongoing. Now, he knew full well everything that was in the hearts of all of his people. You could cross-reference that, for example, with Luke and the chapter 9 and verse 47. But our Lord throws out the question here, nonetheless, in verse 33, to tease them out into the open and make them confess what they had been doing along the way. What was it that ye disputed among yourselves by the way? And in 34, they held their peace. But our Savior didn't leave it at that. And nor does He do this whenever we do the same as these disciples, because when you look down at verse 36, you see what happened there, and, and there's no indication He responded to them, or even said, I know what you talked about. But He proves here by His actions 
in verse 36 that he knew exactly what they were talking about. And he took a child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said unto them, notice, he just swivels around and talks to the disputing disciples. He said unto them, Whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name receiveth me, and whosoever shall receive me receiveth not me, but him that sent me. What our Lord is saying here is, this child is a picture of humility, became his object lesson to those disciples. Through this child, he is able to teach them what he taught again and again in the Word. In Matthew 5 and 3 and Luke 14 11, we have a taught again in James 4 and 6. 1 Peter 5 and verse 5, God rejecteth the pride, he giveth grace unto the humble. This lesson that goes all through Scripture, that if we are to go forward in the service of Christ here on earth, then we do that by taking the lowest place. Did not our Lord illustrate that when He talked about the person coming to the feast? And they went to the lowest place, not to the highest, because when you went to the highest, you were demoted if you were out of place there. But if you went to the lowly seat, even though you were deserving of a most high, a much higher station, then somebody will come, pick you out, and say, you're sitting in the incorrect seat. You should be up at the top table. Come with us now. And so that happens. Our Lord again is teaching in that, this lesson on humility. And in Matthew eleven twenty nine and 30, he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. In other words, get into my school. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But what does he emphasize here about his own spirit, about his own attitude for the disciples here had this misplaced spirit? The emphasis was completely wrong. He said, I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. It's only when you take the lower path and seek to learn the lesson of true humility that strife and unrest and passion and wicked disputation and pride and all of the faults here that we have in these disciples and we have in our lives as well, it is only then that these are taken out and we do find genuine rest for our souls, because if we are not submitting to the rule and will of Christ in our lives, we'll be agitated. We'll be going about with this spirit within us thinking, nobody appreciates what I do. Nobody realizes my worth and my value and my merit here, and we'll all be stirred up in our own souls. And the root of bitterness will be well watered and developed here. That's why our Savior says, I am meek and lowly in heart. That's what you need to pitch for, because only then will you find rest for your souls. So the first lesson that he puts his finger on here deals with submission. Then the second is about susceptibility. Susceptibility. 
what we're liable or prone to. And even as we see here with the disciples, even the best of us is in danger of speaking and acting carelessly and acting wrongly and speaking like that as well. Look at verse 38 again and underline the person talking. And John answered him, is it not usually Peter answered him? Would we not more expect it to be Thomas speaking up? Or even Judas? It's rarely John. And John answered him saying, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he followeth not us, and we forbid him because he followeth not us. John is telling him this. He's the disciple that we know our Lord was particularly close to. The disciple whom Jesus loved, we're told, in John 13 and verse 23. And yet John, close to Christ, though he was, strays out into choppy water and gets it so wrong, acts carelessly and wrongly. And he isn't the only one. We have Moses speaking completely out of turn, recorded in Psalm 106, verse 33. We have David. And although David was identified in the Bible as a man after God's own heart, it didn't mean that he was perfect. He erred as well. 2 Samuel eleven twenty seven. The Paul and Barnabas and Paul and Barnabas are at loggerheads and they're full on in disagreement. And we read about that in Acts 15 and the verse 39. Even the best of us, including in this case John, were in danger of speaking and acting carelessly and wrongly. Is that not the case? And that leads me to three conclusions. One is this. How patient the Lord is with us, His people. When He sees us doing it once and again and again, don't they learn the lesson? Won't they ever learn the value of humility? Won't they realize how liable and susceptible they are to the works of the flesh? Why do they keep going here, doing that, saying these things? Surely they would learn. How patient the Lord is with us. Another conclusion, we should be patient with one another. In James 5 and verse 9, we're told, Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. A third conclusion, when we know that failure in our lives, and it's one like the disciples here, it's been discussed and debated through the number. It's a public thing. We need to confess it to God, First John 1 and 9, and to one another as well, James 5 and verse 16, confess your faults one to another. 
And surely in the light of this, with John breaking rank, leading the rest in the wrong direction here and doing the wrong thing, we are saying before the Lord, Lord, that is me. So often that's me. But I praise Thee for Thy patience and Thy love and grace in putting up with such sinners as we are. Submission, susceptibility, serviceability, serviceability. Our Lord here, and it's shown in the chapter, He employs a great variety of workers so that his kingdom can go forward. And so in verse 38 here, we have John saying that, well, we spotted a person there. John answered him saying, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he followeth not us, and we forbid him because he followeth not us. That again is very striking. They saw somebody who didn't recognize him. He wasn't part of their band. He wasn't part of their inner circle. And the Lord is teaching them here, I employ all kinds of workers in my service, many different kinds of workers. And of course, we discover that in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 29, God hath chosen the weak things, things which are not, to bring to naught the things that are. Again, in 1 Corinthians 12, 4 to 18, we have the whole discussion of the different gifts and how one person who's an eye cannot say to the hand or the foot or any other part, I'm the special part here. You've got a lesser function. We have no need of you. All of the members coalesce joined together in one body. Every single part is necessary in the work of Christ. So we're all different right across the world in race and place and face, but we are all one through the grace of God, and every single one is vital. And even though they put the spotlight on this particular man, and they say here, he followeth not us, our Lord goes on to emphasize that's not the key thing. What is key is He's following me. He's serving me. Submission, susceptibility, serviceability. Then, of course, we come into the realm here that's just being flagged up or about to be of sectarianism. Sectarianism. Rigid sectarianism is an abomination to the Lord. He showed that in the way they dealt with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and other sects and tight groupings there, that if you weren't part of it, then you were made to feel a total outsider. And so in verse 38, as John says to the Lord, this was the basis of our protest against this person. He followeth not us. That's why we forbade him, because he followeth not us. Says it twice, just for emphasis, he wasn't part of our number. He didn't join in with us. He didn't submit to our way of doing things here. Notice the answer of Christ in verse 39. But Jesus said, 
forbid him not. For there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. Those disciples were concerned about this person. Our Lord said, He's working in my name. What He's doing, He is doing in my name. He is doing by my power. Otherwise, our Lord would never have commended Him had He not been doing that, and He was exercising a powerful ministry. Things were happening. But the disciples in their sectarianism thought, well, we are the chosen few. Nobody else counts. They were indignant at anybody not belonging to their inner circle. How can they be using the name of the Lord? And sometimes we see that hard, critical, crusty, unloving spirit existing among the people of God today because some of us think our little group is right on everything and they're wrong. We need to stop criticizing. Seek the Lord's forgiveness. Realize there's more than just us doing the Master's bidding, calling His name, working by His power. Of course, we keep in mind, and we totally agree with what J.C. Ryle and others have said, we don't compromise on the basis of truth. We call out apostasy. We did on Sunday morning. By God's grace, we'll continue to do that and expose error. But at the same time, there are other people doing the work of Christ in addition to us. And in Galatians 3 and verse 28, we're told, For there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female even, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And that's a motto that we need to put into operation. So we have a lesson here on submission, susceptibility serviceability, sectarianism, and you'll see very clearly subtlety here as well. Subtlety. The work of the devil is as real today as it was 2,000 years ago. Our Lord identifies this man here as, well, he was casting out devils. Master, we saw one casting out devils. The disciples say to him, Our Lord says he's doing a miracle in my name. See, a man will not lightly speak evil of me. But here's a man, and he's engaging in a work that has drawn the opposition of the devil. And he's driving out those demons. The devil is still the great enemy of man. And many times we're prone to underestimate the power that he has. Maybe because he's not revealing himself always, as 1 Peter 5 and 8 describes him, he goeth about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, but rather, and we're also told this in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, he can often come under the guise of an angel of light. 
and he sounds so plausible, and he seems to be on the right track, and he appears to be our friend, but all the time he's working for our demise and putting in banana skins all around us. In Ephesians 6 and 12, we're reminded we wrestle not against, and this is not merely against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And here's someone who was going out against the devil and the gates of hell were shaking in front of the power that he was showing. It was the power of Christ, not his own power, of course. But he was doing damage to the kingdom of the devil, and sometimes, surely, we lament. We're not doing the kind of damage to the devil's kingdom that we should be doing. May God change that. So we have a lesson in submission, susceptibility serviceability, sectarianism, subtlety here as well. Then what about the spectacular? The spectacular. Verse 38 describes the man here as performing a miracle. In verse 39, notice that uh, our Lord does not dispute what His disciples told Him. They said in 38, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name. And what does Jesus do in verse 39? There is no man, he said, that shall do a miracle in my name that can speak evil of me or can lightly speak evil of me. So our Lord is endorsing what they'd seen. He was involved in the realm of the miraculous here. He was casting out devils, and he was doing it in the name of Jesus Christ. Of course, he was only the instrument. The power wasn't in his name. And is that not why he remains nameless? What was his name? The Bible doesn't tell us the name of this man. John's name is given. The one who brought the report about him but the man is not identified who he is. Because where the power was pulsing through was his reliance upon Christ. Anything he did, he was doing in Jesus' name. Do miracles still happen today? Of course they do. Not of the Rodney Brown kind of showman business, escapade, bringing people up, slaying them reportedly in the spirit, punching people on stage, claiming somebody has been healed of their disease, and then when you catch up with the person who is reportedly healed, you'll find they're still on their crutches, they're still ill with cancer, they still have all the problems that they came with to those so-called special meetings. Do miracles still happen? Salvation is a miracle. That's still happening today, and we praise God for that. We have many illustrations of God's mighty power and intervention. 
John Gibson Patton, out in the New Hebrides, how God protected him, David Livingstone. God miraculously protected those servants of His, and He can do that still today. His power is still the same. And in fact, He impresses upon us in Matthew 17, 20 to 21, and in Mark 9 and verse 23 as well. Look at Mark 9, 23. Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And He talks about faith in Matthew 17, the size of a grain of mustard seed, being able to move mountains. How will it happen? Not through our power, not through some special ministry we have. It will be done like this man in the name of Christ. And may His name ring out over our city, and may His name bring the power of salvation to every place. Final lesson that we have here, one of submission, susceptibility, serviceability, sectarianism, subtlety, spectacular sensibility. All service rendered in the name of Christ is noted by Him, and it will be rewarded. The disciples here, they weren't actually drawing attention to this man for a good reason. But our Lord commends him. That's the upshot of it all. He commends this man. 39, but Jesus said. So he's going against their take on him, but here's the change. Jesus said, forbid him not. For there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. Our Lord is commanding him. Thanks for drawing my attention to what he's doing in my name. The Savior, of course, knew exactly what he was doing, knew who he was everything about him. But he uses the disciples' complaint to turn it into a commendation. You're trying to pull him down. You're exposing him to your criticism. I'll tell you, I commend him highly. He's doing it in my name, and that service is seen by me and shall be rewarded by me. That means that no matter what we do, and sometimes we, we minimize our efforts and we diminish what we're doing, we're thinking, this is just common everyday things. Like going out and giving a nice smile to your neighbor, having a pleasant conversation, passing the time of day, helping them out with something. In all of those common everyday tasks, we are to do it. Well, Colossians 3 and 17 tells us how we are to do it. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all, like this man did, in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. And of course, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, 
do all to the glory of God. One reason why it's very important to give thanks for your food. Something that I fear some people forget all about now. And they just plow right in and forget to pause and give God thanks for these everyday blessings. So he commands this man. Through him commands his people. But of course, all the praise, all the glory, all the honor is due to him for his mercy and his grace because without that, this unnamed man would be nothing, could do nothing, and same with us. We should, over this incident, give all praise to God. We have one of our hymns which says, Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. O my soul, praise Him, for He is your health and salvation. Come all who hear, now to His temple draw near, join me in glad adoration or the doxology that has been sung hundreds of times in this house. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And we praise the one who looks down on us wicked sinners, and even with all of our mistakes, when we're working sincerely in His name, doing His business, working for His kingdom against the kingdom of the devil, He's patient with us, and He commends us. Well done, good and faithful servant. Doesn't matter that the other disciples don't see the value in what you're doing are misrepresenting you and misinterpreting what you're doing. The Master praises. Watermelon. 